We're in Hebrews chapter 11. We have been looking at faith. What is it? Uh, and, and how does it work? And we've been looking at, uh, from the, the first verse where faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence or the conviction of things not seen. And, and that as we go through this life of faith, we've seen the writer here has given a number of examples of what faith is. And he's used this to kind of drive the truth home in the people's hearts in the first century, the, the Hebrew Christians that had converted, come out of Judaism and come into Christianity who were discouraged, he's using this this whole thing as a powerful tool for them. And he keeps going back to what was their Bible, the Old Testament, and he's doing a series of, of sort of Bible studies. And so uh, as we look at them, we know that they were going through severe trials. They were going, their life was pressed in on every side. And uh, as I was looking at that whole aspect for this morning and looking at trials, uh, this is not a minor theme in the New Testament. Uh, going through having troubles in our lives is a major thread that runs all the way through. It runs through the entire Word of God. We see a lot of places in Romans chapter 5. Paul the Apostle talks about trials. In Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 12, Philippians chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 5, 2 Peter chapter 2, James chapter 1. I could keep going. Trials, trouble, tribulation, that's the Bible word, are part of this life. What we do, how we respond in trials means everything, because the way I respond to trials in my life when I'm not a believer, when I'm not a Christian, is way different than the way that I respond to trials as a believer, as a child of God, as a Christian. And so, again, looking at John chapter 16, Jesus, he was giving parting instructions for his guys. This is like just after the Last Supper, they're walking through the city and on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane where he would be arrested. He says this in verse 33 of chapter 16. He says, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have trouble, tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So he's saying that In me, you can have peace. In the world, you're going to have the opposite of that. You're going to have trouble. But he says, he says, hey guys, cheer up. I've overcome the world. And and part of what we're looking at this morning is how that has come about. Uh, He doesn't tell them that he's going to keep them from trials. God never promised, you know, hey, it's it's going to be easy. It's going to be a breeze. Just now that you've believed, you've given your heart to Christ, you've let the weight of your life down on him. Now it's going to just be a cakewalk? No, that's not part of it. Very often, I've shared with you guys before about when my brother came to Christ, he came to Christ and within a month his entire life fell apart. I mean, he lost his job, lost his home, lost his car. And I had an opening in my business at the time, and I'm telling God, no, I'm not hiring my older brother to do that. And uh, it didn't, it never does well when you try to tell God what he ought to do. But... um, at any rate, so he, he's not telling them he's, that, that God is going to keep you from trials. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be with you through them. And that's the difference. As we learn to walk by faith, we learn to identify what it is that he is doing in us 
through the trial because he uses those. Um, three things that he does uh, briefly in trials, and I'm going to move through this quickly because we're, uh, for obvious reasons, don't have as much time. Uh, but three things he does, he meets us in them. And he says, by faith, you'll see that, that he will meet you in that difficulty. He'll meet you. And that's where he pours out mercy. That's where he pours out compassion. That's where he says, I can identify you with your suffering. I can identify with you. And so he he does that. He also sustains us through them. Uh, as we call upon him, as we say, Lord, I am not strong enough to bear up under this, because sometimes the trials that we go through are pretty intense. Sometimes that pain runs really deep. Sometimes the things that we experience are things that I, there's, I, and I freely admit, I would not be able to bear up were it not for his sustaining hand, were it not for him being, sending the comforter. That's what he calls the Holy Spirit. The comforter will come. He will put his hand upon you. He will strengthen you. He'll sustain you through this. The other thing that he does is, is that he strengthens our faith through the trials. Now, and essentially our trust, to be able to come to trust him more as we go along. That's what we call growth. And so, as I go through things and I see his faithfulness, and then I go through more things and I see his faithfulness, and it may not come out the way that I thought it would come out. And that's usually where I need to adjust my thinking because he's God. It's important to understand that he's going to grow me through them. That doesn't mean that he's punishing you. That doesn't mean that if you're going through a very painful time, that, that he's, that, that doesn't mean he did that so that he could just cause you pain. Well, look at that. What it means is he's going to use that for his glory. He's going to use that to conform us to the image of his son. God calls us all things to work together to, for those that love him and are called according to his purpose is what we see in Romans 8.28. Romans 8.29 tells us what that purpose is. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He is building Christ in us. He is conforming us to him. He is teaching us. That's why we have on our bulletins and all the other things. Learning to think like Jesus. He's he's rewiring us away from this life of flesh to this life of spirit. So as the Hebrew Christians, they they were going through some really, really tough stuff. They, They were going through persecution. They were going through loss of property. Probably the biggest trial that they had was they had, this is about 30 years when this book, Hebrews, was written, about 30 years after the cross and the resurrection, was they expected that Jesus would have returned by then. And that was huge for them. They were discouraged. They were disillusioned. Uh, and, and, and it was a very difficult thing, a very difficult period. Persecution was on the rise in the mid-60s. The, the early to mid-60s is when it's thought this, this letter was written. And it would continue to increase uh, in 66. Uh, literally, the, the Jerusalem would, would come under a four-year siege from Rome, and, and it would end with the, the city being obliterated, Jews being, or Christians being, and Jews being carted off to different parts, those that survived, because there would be crosses all over the city. I mean, it would have been horrible. These guys are going through it. They're going through a lot of trials. What does that mean to me in the 21st century? What it means is that God's word is timeless in its application. I can take from this and I can say, Lord, there are some things you reveal in here that I can apply to my own life. 
that I can that I can that I can take hold of in a tangible spiritually, but in a tangible way that I can take I can grab a hold of these things and I can apply them to my life and I can say, Lord, I see you working in the midst of this thing that I'm going through. I see you touching my heart in ways that probably wouldn't be touched any other way except uh, when my life is just in difficulty. Uh, I've often said. Folks, yeah, we don't like trials. I'm not, I don't like going through trials anymore. It'd be like looking forward to going to the dentist's office. I mean, nobody does that. But the purposes of God are worked through them. And as we fix our eyes on that, we're able to endure this. A couple of things that were happening to these people as their faith was being tried. They were disillusioned. Uh, literally what disillusionment is, it's holding on to an expectation which will not come about. Have you ever been dis- disillusioned? I have. I, I, I had expectations in my life for many years. I had aspirations for ministry that it was like, man, Lord, and I finally, I walked away, I gave up. Right before he called us here, I, it was like, Lord, I, I just thought you were going to call us to pastor a church and that, you know, we'd sure like Oregon. And, and that was our prayer. And I, then I took a job in Colorado. I was disillusioned. It didn't come about. And then God moved sovereignly and did what he did. So it's just like when you hope for and you expect one thing and another thing happens. Or, or, or when you're confident that something wouldn't happen and it does. Those can be sources of disillusionment for us. They were disillusioned. They had expectations that Jesus would be there. They probably had expectations that their life would be a lot cushier than it was, and yet it wasn't. The next thing that would be happening with those people and that I could connect with in this is that they would be fearful of the future. In other words, what we have as Christians is we have what we call hope. We've talked about that. It's where we fix our hope on the fact that we have there's a uh, what Phil was saying. There's a, a, another life coming that this life pales to insignificance by comparison. And so when we fix our eyes on that, on the hope that we have, it's easier to deal here, isn't it? When I understand that, as we looked at last uh, last week, this world isn't our home. And it wasn't Abraham. Remember, we looked at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob for 500 years. They dwelt in tents. Uh, the, the, all the, the children of Israel. They, God promised them a land, and then they didn't inherit it. Did that mean that God's promise was void? No, it meant that God had his timetable, and they by faith embraced that and dwelt in tents, because it doesn't always look the way we expect it to look. That's where faith comes in, holding on to the promises of God. So they were fearful of the future. They didn't understand what was going on. They wouldn't know if the soldiers were going to come and seize their house. They didn't know if the soldiers were going to come and take out their broadswords and slaughter their families. It happened. It happened all the time. And so they were fearful. They didn't know what was happening. I look at that in our culture. People are fearful of the future. They don't understand what's going on so often. That's why so many medicate themselves with drugs. It's like, I just want to escape. I don't like what the direction my life's going. That's why some just refuse to deal. They, they won't deal. They, they, they insulate themselves. They hide themselves from others. They, they put up walls. Because there's this, this whole 
thing that, that goes on inside. They, they're fearful. They don't want to deal. Uh, some become aggressive or angry. Very often people will throw up anger to get you to back off if you try to get a little bit below the surface because there's pain involved. There are people that are hurting. And, and, and I've learned very often when I see somebody that's angry, it's because there's hurt underneath that. It's because something has happened. Perhaps someone has said something that hurt their feelings and now they're angry about it. And then the Lord comes and he convicts. He says, you know, you need to deal with that anger because that's not from me. Uh, and so these people were going through it. They were in that fearfulness. One of the things I read this, it said that it's been said that fear is the wrong use of the imagination. It's imagining the worst, seeing the circumstances you're in, and oh my gosh, this is never going to work out. Everything's going to just go to waste. Everything's ruined. I, and you know, and I confess to you guys, I get into that sometimes. I call it making up a story. And my wife's smiling. But it's like you have, you go to the worst interpretation of some circumstances that you're in, and then all of a sudden you're starting to stress and maybe wring your hands, and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, are we going to have enough money? Or are they going to still like us? Are they, is there, what's going to happen next? And, and we can do that, and if we make up a story about it and we start acting out of emotions, then the next thing we do is we're acting on bad information. And so, that's going to produce a bad outcome. And I know that in my life, there are times where I say, you know, I just like to keep short accounts with people. Are we okay? And they're like, yeah, what are you, silly? What's going on? Because I want to make sure that I'm not acting on bad. I don't want to get myself in a place where I can make up a story. So again, the third thing that these people were dealing with was borderline apostasy. Very important that we understand that's why the writer here in Hebrews gives strong, strong exhortations in chapter 6. And then in chapter 10, he says, look, don't even think about walking away. There is nothing there. They were thinking about going back to Judaism. I've talked about different isms, and I came out of an ism when I was raised in Mormonism and all of that. The last thing in the world I would think about doing is going back to that because of the truth of the gospel, because I understand that in his kingdom is life. There's no other thing that exists. They were thinking that it did. That's why the writer went to such great lengths to say, look, Judaism expired. It's done. The old covenant is gone. There's a new covenant in place. And so they were beginning to, 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 to waffle. They were beginning to go through these things of considering going back when there's really nothing to go back to. It was in their own minds, a construct of theirs, because Judaism was still going on. But they had come out of Judaism. They had renounced that in embracing Christ. And many of them have had gone through some huge struggles as a result. So... The point is, is that our loyalty and our confidence reside in the same place. What happened with them, what could happen with us, and don't think that it can't, is you come to a place of saying, I'm not trusting in Jesus anymore, now I'm trusting in, and fill in the blank. There are lots of things out there that would love to pull you away from devotion to Christ, and and for you to end up investing your life in different things. Huge, huge warning there. And what the writer is doing here, he's saying, look, you need endurance. Remember, we looked at that, chapter 10, verse 36, for you have need of endurance that after having done the will of God, which is to hang in there through the trial, 
to wait for what's been promised. And uh, he's saying you need endurance. You don't need another experience. I look out there at the landscape, the religious landscape in our country, in our nation, and I think, oh my gosh, it's like packaging one experience after another. There's so much hype out there. That is, and I see the enemy's intent is to replace simple devotion to Christ. To go for the show. I, I told people, you know what? If you came here for the show, you're in the wrong church. Not that I don't want to offer people the best worship experience that we can. I mean, that we don't want to look at God's word, all of that. But we're not here to entertain. We're here to seek God together, to come together as a body to say, Lord, what about me? Uh, and maybe that's Kenya this year for you. Maybe that's something else. But as we come together to discover what it is that he has for us, that's why we gather, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And, and so we could get off in the weeds on all these other things, on these experiences. And he's saying, no, it's not about experiences. It's about endurance. It's about hanging in there through thick and thin, through trials, through good times. And if you're not going through trials this morning, I've mentioned before, praise God. Well, I'll guarantee you, you're either coming out of one or you're about to go into one because that's what life is. That's how it works. And, and so you're either going to do that, understanding the things that God's word puts forth and be strengthened by that trial, or you're going to do it and be at the effect of the circumstances that you're in and end up overwhelmed. That's the beauty of God's word. All of that is to get into our text this morning. And we got five minutes. <laughs> Chapter 11, we're going to just go through three verses this morning. Uh, it was just timely. I, I love the Lord's timing on that. It was timely that with having Phil and Denise share and, then, and thinking, you know, Lord, this is just a, a great small little section of three verses. We're going to probably run over a little bit, so I beg your indulgence. If you have to leave, you can pop out quietly. But... Um, that's just, that's a preacher's warning that I'm going to go along. Um, chapter 11, uh, the test, the testing of Abraham in verses 17 to 19. Uh, just to understand what's going on, Ishmael uh, was gone. Remember Abraham, God said, hey, you're going to have a baby. And he laughed. And then Sarah was at the door of the tent. We talked about it last week. She laughed. And God said, why are you laugh? She said, I wasn't laughing. And, oh, yeah, you were. But the point is, is that, so here he is, he's a hundred years old and, and, and they have this baby in, in Genesis 21. And, and out of that, God has promised that he had already promised Abraham, you know, through you, the nations of the world are going to be blessed through your seed. And all of that. And so Abraham gets this promise and, and God reinforces the promise in Genesis 21. And then we look in Genesis 22, which we're going to go into some this morning. And, and, and God says, now I want you to take your son, that son of promise, Ishmael, not, or Isaac, not Ishmael. Uh, and I want you to take him to a place I show you. And then I want you to sacrifice him there. It, it was really interesting. So in verse 17, in Hebrews 11, we see, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. That's Genesis 21. Verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from also he which received him, from which also he received him in a figurative sense. So, 
what's happening here, just to lay the groundwork, is God has given Abraham a promise, and now he gives him a commandment. And the, the commandment is in complete opposition, apparently, to the promise. He's saying, how do I reconcile that? The promise is that you're going to bless the nations of the earth through my son. The commandment is, go kill your son. You see? And, and so that sets up something inside of Abraham that is fascinating to look at. Uh, and we'll see that God never intended that his son be sacrificed. He, it was, it was never, he never wanted Isaac. He wanted Abraham's heart. Uh, so he's over a hundred years old. Isaac's not a young guy. He, or he's not a baby. He's not a child. He, he, Abraham piles the wood on him for the sacrifice and all that. He's probably a young man. Uh, probably could have overpowered his father at this point. And what God says, when God says, I want you to go sacrifice your son, remember folks, this is long before the, the, the law of Moses came along. This is hundreds of years before. Abraham had no point of reference here that sacrifices were going to be part of what God required. And so he is totally operating by faith in what God is telling him to do. And so it's just important that we understand as we go through Genesis 22 here that this is all new stuff for Abraham. Uh, yeah, he came from a family of pagan idolaters, and we see that in Joshua 24. We looked at that last week. Before God got a hold of him, his family was into false god worship on the other side of the river. Remember, we looked at that. And, and, and that God pulled him out of that and into this, into this thing where he was sojourning with God to this new land. In Genesis 22, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your only, your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So God doesn't tell Abraham exactly where he'll go, but he says to the land of Moriah. Now we know that Mount Moriah is where he ended up. And that is a really, it's still a significant place. It's the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is on Mount Moriah. You've probably seen, if you look at pictures of Jerusalem, you see the big gold dome there. It's, a, it's an Islamic holy place. The, 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 it's called the Dome of the Rock. The reason that it's called the Dome of the Rock is because in Islam, they say that that's where Abraham was told by God to go and sacrifice Ishmael the son that was born outside of the promise. But in Genesis 12, 21, it says that Ishmael and his mother Hagar, were they were banished to the wilderness of Paran, which is now modern-day Saudi Arabia. Interesting there. But the point is, is this is a really significant place. And I, I, I look at this and I think, you know, wherever God puts down the truth, the enemy puts down a lie. That whole dome, there's a rock inside of the dome, and it's said that this is where this took place, except it was with the other son, the son outside the promise. And we know that that's not the case. So he doesn't tell him exactly where it's going to be, but he does tell him, you know, I will show you as you go along. So verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. He saw the place far off. So imagine this. Imagine that you're the father. You're Abraham. And God has told you, I want you to take your son out. And I want you to, I'll show you where to go. I want you to take fire or wood for a fire. And I want you to take a really sharp knife. 
And I want you to sacrifice your son to me. Imagine what would be going on. He says, your son whom you love. Abraham and, and his wife, uh, Sarah had loved, poured into the son of promise. And, and, and here now he's told to go and to do this thing. But Abraham through the whole deal is thinking, you promised me, God, Lord, that you would bless the families of the earth through this son. So you must be, now here's where faith comes in, guys. He's got the promise, and then he's got the action that is in conflict with the promise, an apparent conflict. i got to say apparent, because it never was in God's mind. But Abraham couldn't see the outcome. That's why faith is required. We so often cannot see the outcome of that thing that's in front of us, that thing that we're going through. And he says, I want you to walk by faith. I want you to trust me even when it doesn't look good. That's the point the writer is making with the Hebrew Christians of the first century. Trust God. It doesn't look good. Yeah, they're taking away your homes. They're they're plundering your, your property. They're killing your family. You've been ostracized. You can't find work. You don't know where you're going to eat. You have all these question marks in your life. And, and and yet you have the promises of God. And you need to hold on to those, especially when it doesn't look good. That's what it means when the Bible says the just shall live by faith. And that's the point he's making with them. It's the point God was making with Abraham. It's the point that the writer's making with the Hebrew believers in the first century. And it's the point that we can take, if there's nothing else you take out of this this morning, is that God calls us to walk by faith because what we see very often doesn't match up with what we know. And we have to say, Lord, this faith, it's it's the substance of things hoped for. I can't see it. It's the evidence of things not seen. Going back to verse 1, that's what he's about. That's why he's elaborating now on, on Abraham. He couldn't see it, but he was faithful, and he went through it. it. The text in here indicates, by the way, that Abraham had already done it in his mind. The tense of the verbs, when, when he goes to sacrifice his son, that he had already he'd, he'd already carried it off. So uh, the, the point in that is, have you ever gone through anything, I mean, something really, really severe, and, and you wake up every day? And I, I remember going through the loss of someone that I loved very, very much, and, and waking up every morning and, and just wishing that it had all gone away and that it was all a bad dream, and it was there, and, and the pressure was there, and, and, and the sadness was there, the grief was there, and and there was no escaping that. And uh, I can only imagine what Abraham was going through because there's this disparity now between what God has said and what God has asked him to do. But Abraham holds on to that. Uh, it, it, so this is a remarkable passage. Uh, and back to, to Genesis 22, verse 5. And I'm going to try to speed this up some. I, I, again, I ask your indulgence. Uh, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we'll come back to you. So he's even assuming that his son is going to come back with him afterwards. Even, even in the text here, you can see that there's this thing called hope that is going on in Abraham's heart. And that's by faith. He is hoping 
for that thing that he can't see. He doesn't understand the outcome, but he's walking by faith. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went on together. But Isaac said to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? In other words, Isaac's kind of scratching his head and he's saying, okay, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, I see you've got the knife. Where's the animal? And Abraham says, verse 8, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And so the two of them went on together. Uh, it's one of those moments of, uh, where Abraham would have to absolutely be trusting God at this point. He knows what he's been told to do. And he also knows that this is the son of promise. This is the one God promised 25 years before his birth that he would have. And now everything is lining up. The pressure's on. And he has to either cave to his fear or walk by faith. Oh, guys, that's so often what God does with us. Uh, It's a very intense, sobering reality that Abraham has to face. Because what he saw didn't look good. Verse 9, And they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now, at this point, you've got to think, it doesn't say what what's going on in Isaac's head, but you can only imagine Isaac's starting to kind of look at his dad like, what are you doing? And Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. So Isaac had carried the wood, uh, so he would have to be cooperating with his father. Uh, and I just, again, I, I think about the intensity of this moment, their eyes meeting, you know, the love, the uncertainty, the fear, the, the, the grief, the pain, all of this stuff piled on at this moment. Abraham draws back the knife. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham stops dead in his tracks as God speaks to him. And he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns. And so Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. (laughs) Pardon me. Um, This is, and I would love to, to go there. I'm not going to rabbit trail. I'm very sorely tempted to do that because this is a perfect illustration. This is a, a type and a shadow we've talked about in Hebrews or is full of shadows. And here in Genesis, in the very early pages of the Bible is a picture of substitutionary atonement. That's the fancy word for it. In other words, one dying in the place of another, which is exactly what is fulfilled in Jesus when he goes to the cross. He is the lamb that would take our place. A beautiful picture of that. Verse 14, I'm still resisting. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, and as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven, and he said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, listen to this, blessing I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth 
will be blessed. Now, I want you to understand something. What he says here, he says, because you have obeyed my voice. He does not say because you were willing to sacrifice your son. That's not the point. What he said was, Abraham, you were willing to obey me even when it didn't look good. You were willing to believe me. You're willing to believe in my promises. You're willing to believe that I am and I am the rewarder of those who seek me. You're willing to trust me through this, even to the point of thinking, well, God must be able to raise Isaac from the dead because he's doing this and he's already promised and it's the only way I can reconcile it in my mind. The point is, is he's not doing this. He's not saying it for any other reason than because you have obeyed my voice. That's what he calls upon us to do. That's what faith is. It's obeying God even when what I see doesn't make sense. God was never, as I mentioned, he was never about Abraham murdering his son. He was never about Abraham sacrificing his son. But he was about testing him. He goes on in Genesis to say, look, Abraham, I was after the obedience, not the sacrifice. And that's what he's after in our lives, the obedience, not the sacrifice. Because if you look at it, if you get, we could get all caught up in this whole deal and get on this work strip. Well, you know, if I go and I, you know, murder an animal and then, you know, then God's going to like me kind of a thing. That's, that's not what it's about. It's about trusting God. These are living parables for us to be able to understand. Three things I want to look at as we wrap up from this passage. The first, is faith is not about how much we sacrifice, but about how much we trust. Big difference. Big difference. Uh, it's not about going and finding something valuable and burning it up. That that uh, that way we can make God like us. What you're doing in that, if we if we get it, that's legalism. It's it's also you could make a case for being superstitious or superstition from that. And and it's something that drives me mildly crazy when I hear people, Christians, being superstitious about things. But the point is, it's not if I do this, then God has to do that. You've got to realize something about the God that we serve. He will be in debt to no man. (laughs) Drives me nuts when I see the prosperity gospel going out there, the whole deal, the prophetic movement. Bethel, all that stuff, because it rips people off. It says God is in your debt. You do this, then he's going to bless you with prosperity or with wealth or with with whatever it is. And he is not, that is not, he is not some cosmic bellhop to do our bidding. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. And he demands not only our respect, but our allegiance, our loyalty to understand he is the one. It's his ball. It's his ball game. He makes the rules and he invites us to play. That's it. So it's not about how much we sacrifice, but how much we trust. Are you willing to trust God when what you see, when what you hear, when what your senses are telling you doesn't add up? That's walking by faith. In Verse 18 of chapter 22, he says, in, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. It wasn't the sacrifice. It was the trust. God will not be in my debt. Second thing here, testing is not about punishment. It's about endurance. And how often as a pastor, I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, 
God must be mad at me. I'm really going through some tough stuff. What did I do wrong? Or, or gee, I've got these terrible circumstances, so, you know, God is out to kind of get me it is the, the mindset that, that's being approached with. And, and it's not that. He's a, it's not about the sacrifice. It's trust. It's not about punishment. It's about endurance. He is calling upon us to endure hardship, to endure trials. As I mentioned, and Jesus in John 16 says, in the world you will have trouble. You will, but be of good cheer. How do you do that? You appropriate God's work in your life as you go through that thing. And you say, Lord, I don't understand it. I don't get it. It hurts really bad or I'm really super concerned or whatever the case is. But I'm going to trust you that you're not punishing me. I'm going to ride this out. I'm going to see this through. I'm going to walk through it to the end because I know just like Abraham, he didn't get it. It didn't look good, but he knew that God's promises were there. They were intact. They were sturdy and that his grace is available to all of us. And so as we do that, our lives are enriched. We're not at the effect. I've told people many times, I can't change your circumstances, but I can show you from the Word of God how to live well within them. And this is how. Right here. It's a great example for us, church, and that we walk these things out by faith. James says it's okay to go through trials. You don't have to face anyone else's trials. But you do have to face your own. You might be thinking, well, I could never put my son on the altar. You don't have to. But you do have to deal with what's in front of you. And we all have to deal with the things that God has on our plate. And sometimes it's not pleasant. Very often it's not pleasant. Very often those are things that are, that in the end are going to refine us, hone us, sharpen us, tenderize us whatever the case may be, because he's using that to build godly character in us. Last thing, we'll wrap up here. Um, All of the trials are temporary, but all of God's promises, all of God's blessings are permanent. Folks, it's so important when we're going through it It's so important when our life is being pressed in. It's so important when the stress is there. It's so important when we wake up in the morning, we go, oh, it's still there. That thing is still, whether it's a small thing or a major thing, it's so important that we learn that the trials are temporary. This too shall pass. It'll pass. The Bible says this life is like a vapor. vapor. It's there for a moment. It's like a mist. It's there and it's gone. Paul the apostle got run out of half the towns in the Roman Empire, was left for dead, was stoned, was beaten with rods, was shipwrecked, bitten by a snake, went to prison in Israel, went to prison in Rome, spent a great deal of his time writing letters to people and to groups. And he said, this is a momentary light affliction. And I, I, I remember as a younger Christian, Christian going, yeah, I hope that I don't have a greater affliction than that. That's momentary and it's light. It's because he understood the perspective that God wants to work in us. This 
life is hard at times. But we have a greater kingdom. Our master has gone to prepare a place for us, and he's going to come back and receive us to himself. We can go through this. We can endure these trials because of the promises that he has, that he's already made, just like Abraham. He already had made the promise, and then he said, look, here's the difficulty. I'm going to test your faith. I'm going to stretch you. But Abraham, through that, I'm going to bless you. That's the point that he's making with us, folks. Uh, uh, the trial, the trials are temporary. They're fleeting. But his word abides forever. His promises abide forever. His presence in our lives, if you're a believer, is permanent. Let's live that way. Let's understand the context of the, the difficulties that we face and say, Lord, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It hurts and it may hurt really bad but I trust you in the middle of it. And I want your will in my life, even if it hurts, even if it's hard, even if it's not comfortable for me or those around me. I want more than anything, Lord, to get to the end of this thing, get to the end of this race. And and as I pass into heaven, I'll tell you what, guys, I live to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord as I step into heaven. I just, I want that so bad. It's like, bring it on here. And that's not something I say lightly, but I mean it because I know that the just shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you, Lord. Yeah, God, thank you for these these three little verses that can have so much weight in our lives that you use to encourage us, Lord. That